Greetings, fellow travelers, vagrants, explorers, and wildlanders. Welcome to episode 9 of the Retro Wildlands. My name is Nomad, and this is my gaming podcast where I like to share my thoughts and experiences with a retro game I used to play back when I was younger, or a modern game I played recently. I'm happy to have you here today, so thank you very much for taking the time to download and listen to the show. I really do appreciate it. We have a good show lined up for today, and I'm excited to get into it, so grab a chair. There's a couple beers over there in the cooler if you'd like, or there's water, or bourbon, whatever fits your fancy, my friend. On today's episode, we're heading back to the PlayStation to revisit a game that I consider to be one of the greatest games of all time. Now, I feel like I say that a lot, but I really mean it this time. This week, we're heading to the doomed Midwestern town of Raccoon City where we'll join up with Leon S. Kennedy and Claire Redfield as they both enter the town and realize things may be just a little fucked up. We're going to be talking about Resident Evil 2 on the Sony PlayStation. I am super stoked to be talking about this game with you today. The original Resident Evil for me was the game that really propelled me down the path of a gamer, and Resident Evil 2 improved on that game in almost every conceivable way. I've played Resident Evil 2 to completion more times than I care to admit, and it contains some of my favorite gaming moments and characters ever. I haven't played it since graduating high school 19 years ago, but I played through it again this past week to refresh myself with it. But really, I never forgot how amazing this game was and why I love it so much. It was like sitting down with an old friend and catching each other up on how things have been over the last couple years. I was reminded of some memories that were really special to me, and I had a genuinely good time. When it was done, and it was time to part ways again, I felt renewed. I felt a happiness I hadn't felt in a long time, and I can't wait to tell you about this game and why it is so special to me. Now, I don't mean to get mushy or anything over here, but you have to understand. While Resident Evil 2 was remade fantastically back in 2019, I really felt like the original still holds up today. It has its flaws, though. The controls are still a bit stiff and hard to get used to. The voice acting, while a little bit better than the first game, is still pretty campy. Backtracking can be a chore, and the story may be a little bit out there. But there's a reason many fans of this series consider this game to be the best. Today, I'll give you my perspective on that argument, all while I sprinkle in some of my childhood memories for added flavor. I don't want to waste too much of our time in the intro this week. I'm anticipating this episode being one of our thicker, juicier ones, so let's get business out of the way first before diving into Resident Evil 2. If you really can't wait and want to skip ahead to the Resident Evil 2 conversation, not a problem at all, you can just skip ahead about 5 minutes or so. But stick around! Other than just plugs, I like to give everyone a peek behind the scenes here in the Wildlands, and I like to think I'm getting more entertaining as I do these intros. Like being at an office meeting, except I'm the host of the meeting. I might just be going over some charts and graphs, but at least I have my charming personality and a few gaming moments to keep everyone awake. Ah, that wasn't my best joke, but whatever, we're moving, people. So nothing too new to report here in the Wildlands this week, I don't think. Things at work are settling down for me a bit, so I feel like I have a little bit more breathing room for personal projects like the podcast, but not much. Work still sucks. It's still pretty warm most days here in Ohio, so the family and I are trying to take advantage while we can, even though the leaves are starting to fall, which is odd. 
It's like the world doesn't know what it wants to do with itself nowadays, but for my listeners here in Ohio, we'll just tell you that it's an Ohio thing. Now that I've gone back to and replayed Resident Evil 2, other old-school games of that era are on my mind for some future content. Resident Evil 3 seems like a logical next step to move towards, but Tomb Raider and Dino Crisis are also PlayStation 1 games I grew up with that I'm eager to go back and revisit. I'm expecting to have a fantastic time with Dino Crisis, but I think I'm more curious to experience Tomb Raider again. I'm interested to see how Lara Croft's first adventure holds up today. I don't think it will all that well, but that's also because I can barely remember anything about it, with the exception of the very beginning where you're fighting a T-Rex for some unknown reason, and the very last area of the game kind of sticks out to me too. My stepdad and I played through it together once, and when we were done, we didn't go back to it for a second time. I vaguely remember us playing Tomb Raider 2 at some point, but I don't remember anything about that game, or if we even finished it or not. I take that back. I think I remember an underwater level I didn't really care too much about, but I'm not a fan of much underwater anything, really. Even the underwater sections of Sonic the Hedgehog 2 weren't something I enjoyed all that much. Maybe it's just the fear of drowning, I don't know. But all those games are on the list to be revisited and potentially be covered on the show. In what order, you might be wondering? Don't know. I think it's just going to depend on my mood at this point. While these games aren't all that big, they might take some time to work through though. I'm also slowly working through the original Final Fantasy VII again, but it's been slow going even though I am playing it on the go with my PlayStation Vita. I'm working through a couple smaller games, some I've played in the past, others I'm discovering for the first time. I'm getting ready to give Toe Jam and Earl a try on the Sega Genesis. I remember playing it once when I was little, but I don't remember a thing about that one though. I'm also looking to revisit the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers on the Super Nintendo. Man, does that get anyone's attention? That original TV show. Man, I watched it a ton when I was a kid, and the Super Nintendo game wasn't too bad from what I remember, but I never did finish that one either. I heard some of the soundtrack for it the other day, and I was reminded of it, so it's something that I went back and popped in again, and I'm really digging it so far. I'm also getting ready to start playing Spider-Man and Venom Maximum Carnage for the Sega Genesis. It's also out for the Super Nintendo, so I might play it on that console too, not entirely sure. But it's a side-scrolling beat-em-up that I played once when I was little. I don't remember too much about it as well, because, I mean, if it's not evident, I have the memory of Goldfish. But I am eager to give that one a go again, and potentially talk about it on the show at some point. When I look back at it now... I completely forgot all the different Marvel characters that are actually in that game, even if some of them just make quick appearances. Even though I like all comic books, and I'm not too brand loyal to one or the other, I've always had a soft spot in my heart for Marvel, since those were the comics I grew up reading. All the Marvel movies and TV shows nowadays aside, characters like Spider-Man and Venom were some of my favorites. I'm curious to see how Maximum Carnage holds up today, too. What do you think about all these games? Are there games out there that I should be looking into for the show? Feel free to sound off on our social media platforms and let me know. You'll find us over on Facebook if you search The Retro Wildlands, and we're also on Instagram and Twitter, at Retro Wildlands. Those are the best places to interact with myself and engage in the show. Even though The Retro Wildlands is still a new podcast, I want it to be a show everyone feels like they can be a part of. So if there's a game you'd like my thoughts on, even if I haven't played it, please let me know. 
If I've never played it, I'll consider picking it up if I have the means. I'm not opposed to picking up a game for the sake of the show if I don't already have it. My physical game collection is slowly growing into something pretty fierce, so there's not too much I can't play. If I can make a decent episode out of it, I'll do that and give you all the credit for the idea. Sounds like a win-win, right? So again, please reach out to me on social media. The nice thing about following the show is we aren't all about the podcast updates over there. I try to upload some gaming content, some videos of the games I'm playing, a funny meme or two, or pictures of my dog. If you aren't doing so now, feel free to drop us a follow. A few of you have already reached out to me directly on social too, and it's been cool really getting to know some of you. Other than that, I just need to get off my ass and do some little stuff around here too. I need to update the show descriptions with timestamps separating the intro, outro, spoiler bits, and main parts of the episode. Not sure if anyone even reads the episode descriptions, but I do with the podcast I listen to, so I thought it would be cool to add some of that stuff at that point and put some social media plugs in there too, make it look all professional and shit. I also host this podcast through Podbean, and through them, I finally created a very basic website for the show. You can check that out at retrowildlandspodcast.podbean.com. Now, Podbean is not paying me to plug them or anything like that. I just wanted to let you know that we have a basic website where you can listen to the show from. You know, now that I'm thinking about it, once upon a time, I actually wanted to design websites for a living. Then I started working on cars, and now I work in an office environment. Oh, how times have changed since I was a wee little boy. Yeah, Alright, that's enough of that. It's time to talk about Resident Evil 2 for the Sony PlayStation. Originally released in North America on January 21st, 1998, it was again re-released later that year with the PlayStation 1 DualShock controller support on November 11th. That version had some interesting little additions to the original game, and it's the version of the game I currently have. When Resident Evil 2 was initially released, it was praised for its atmosphere, graphics, audio, and overall gameplay. It improved on its predecessor in many ways and is still considered one of the greatest survival horror games of all time. So how was my experience with it? Well, scooch in closer to the fire, my friends. Grab your pistol, a stack of ink ribbons, and a couple of green herbs as I share with you the story of Leon and Claire. They were parted by an unescapable destiny. This is the beginning of their worst nightmare. I'll never forget it. It was the year that Resident Evil 2 released on the Sony PlayStation, and just when I thought the original Resident Evil was as good as it was going to get back then. I think it was the official PlayStation magazine that tipped me off to the game coming out. You know, it was the one with Leon on the cover, and it looks like he just physically assaulted a zombie by clotheslining it with a shotgun. I'm pretty sure I ended up getting Resident Evil 2 for Christmas, 
I know it was gifted to me in some capacity by my parents. From what I remember, I don't think I knew much about the game until I got it in my actual hands. That magazine I vaguely remember wasn't mine, I think it was a friend's, so I don't remember much about it. The first thing that really stood out to me about the game itself when I had it in my hands was the fact that it had two discs instead of one. The main characters, Leon S. Kennedy and Claire Redfield, each had their own disc. Depending on what character you wanted to play as, you had to use their disc in the PlayStation. That was so awesome to me. The hardest decision I faced was that initial one. Which character do I play as? Before I could make that decision, I had to do some research. And by research, I mean I read the instruction manual. I remember not being able to play the game right away, so I kept the manual on me most of the day. I learned a lot about the game before I even started it for the first time thanks to that manual. I think we'll use that to start setting the stage for this game. Now real quick, a word about spoilers. Resident Evil 2 has been out for almost 25 years now. The story isn't that complicated, and it doesn't have any twists or turns that are going to rock your world. Much of the plot is a plot that you're going to see coming, I can almost guarantee it. But I want to talk about some of the gameplay moments that I really think you'll get huge enjoyment or terror out of if you experience them without knowing about them ahead of time. I hate it when people ruin things like video games and movies for me, so I want to respect that first-time experience whenever possible. So I'll leave those gameplay experience spoilers to the end of the show, and I'll give plenty of warning before I start spoiling things. Seriously, if you've never played the original Resident Evil 2 and you have the means to do it, I encourage you to play without having some of the cooler moments spoiled for you ahead of time. If you really don't care if I talk about these moments or you've played the game already, then by all means, stick around. I just want to give the option. I know I appreciate it as a gamer when somebody else extends the courtesy to me. Alright, so let's get to it. So, what is this game? Resident Evil 2 is a survival horror adventure game played in the third person. We control either Leon or Claire and have to find a way out of Raccoon City all while either battling or avoiding many undead creatures who mean to rip out our jugular veins and eat us like a McDonald's Happy Meal. We'll have to come across weapons, ammunition, and healing items in order to survive as we solve basic puzzles to progress forward, all while finding documents and clues that give us some insight into what the hell is happening around here. So first things first, let's talk about the characters. Like I mentioned before, I wasn't too sure who I wanted to play as, so I took to the instruction manual to see if there was any information on our heroes. Once I found it, I started reading about Leon. According to the manual, Leon is an idealistic rookie cop. He's very passionate about helping those in need and has a huge desire to protect and serve. He can be a little brash and a little reckless, but he's not as naive as his demeanor suggests he is. He's extremely qualified to be part of the Raccoon City Police Department. Easy enough, Leon is the new guy who wants to do the right thing type. He's a rookie cop, so he probably has some combat training. Check. We learn in the opening of the game that Leon came to Raccoon City in order to report to the police station for his first day. Not entirely sure why he reported in during the middle of the night, but eh, whatever. Moving on to Claire. She's described as a light-hearted woman that is very self-confident and extroverted. 
she's typically the first person to try something many others would not. The manual also calls her a bit of a tomboy. So I took all that to mean she's a wild child who is going to rush into danger first and consider the consequences later. That certainly sounded pretty cool to me, but what caught my attention, though, was her last name, Redfield. Most probably already know this, but she's the younger sister of Chris Redfield, the protagonist from the first Resident Evil game. Now that was intriguing, I thought. It's revealed in the game early on that she's come to Raccoon City in order to find her brother who she lost contact with after the events of the first game. The whole story prospect of Claire really caught my attention. Now, on that same page of the instruction manual, we're introduced to two other characters, and it was pretty clear each of them were exclusive to either Leon or Claire's story. Below Leon, we had Ada Wong. Leon stumbles across this mysterious woman who is very secretive. It's clear in her actions that she's a skilled investigator, and she can also come across as condescending and tends to talk down on those that she deems inferior. Yeah, that's pretty interesting, I thought. A femme fatale, as it were. Before I moved on, Ada's name caught my attention. In the first Resident Evil, there was a researcher in the Umbrella Labs named John, and you had to use his name to access a computer to open some doors in the lab. The password he used was the name of his girlfriend, and that girlfriend was named Ada. So, was it a coincidence this woman just happened to be named Ada? I was super excited to find out. The last person in the manual was a 12-year-old girl named Sherry Birkin. It doesn't really call this out in the manual, but she'll run into Claire during her parts of the story. Sherry is said to be quite mature for her age, but is very shy and not at all confident in herself. Her parents are said to be too busy with their work to be available for Sherry and her emotional needs. Eh, that didn't sound like a fun character to me. As a 14-year-old little nomad, I did not find the idea of potentially babysitting a 12-year-old girl appealing. Assuming Sherry was going to be in Claire's story, I decided I was going to play as Leon for my first go-around. One more thing caught my attention in the instruction manual that I wanted to call out now before we move on. In the manual, there was a section titled, Starting the Second Mission. Resident Evil 2 has a gameplay mechanic where, when you finish the game as one character, you can save your completed gameplay data and play as the other character in the same story. So for example, if I completed the game as Leon, I could save the endgame data and then play as Claire, where I would experience what she experienced while I was playing as Leon. Things I did as Leon would directly impact how Claire's story unfolded. And it was true the other way around. I could play as Claire initially and then play as Leon after her story was complete. These were called A and B scenarios. So what that meant was I could play the game four times and get a relatively unique gameplay and story experience out of each playthrough. For a PlayStation-era game, that whole concept just blew my mind. I don't know of any games back then, or really nowadays offhand, that have a mechanic like this. Now, as far as the overarching Resident Evil storyline considers to be canon, that would be Claire's A scenario and Leon's B scenario. That's the route I decided to run this past week when I replayed the game, so any examples I recall are more than likely going to come from that scenario setup. Farther into the manual, there was a section that had some survival tips. We'll probably share some of these as we go. 
For now, my past self grabbed the disc with Leon's face on it and put it in my PlayStation and fired it up. After the brief opening trailer, which featured some awesome CGI graphics instead of the original Resident Evil's live-action movie scenes, I was ready to get this show on the road. Once we hit the start button and get going, we're met with a pretty lengthy CGI movie to start the game off. Leon and Claire both enter Raccoon City around the same time. Leon in his Jeep and Claire on her motorcycle. We're given a shot of a truck driver who was bit by a maniac and drives his truck away as an obvious zombie shambles off screen. I'm sure that'll come into play a little later. Anyway, Leon comes across a body in the middle of the road that's had its back all torn apart. He stops to examine it and, once he does, zombies come out of the woodwork to welcome him warmly to the city. The person on the ground wakes up, and it's at this point Leon decides that lethal force is needed. He shoots at his pursuers, but they are not going down. Leon slowly backs into an alley, commenting that he's almost out of ammo. Now as this is happening, Claire enters a diner and comes across a zombie chowing down on some fresh human flesh, and she's not quite sure what to make of that situation. She slowly backs away and realizes the exterior of the diner is surrounded by the undead. She notices a back door and runs towards it. As soon as she opens it, she's met by Leon who almost puts a bullet right in her face. Seeing the zombie behind her, he tells Claire to hit the deck and finally does the one thing he has not been doing this entire time. He shoots it in the head. Splat! Once the zombie goes down, Leon and Claire join up and head to a police car that has its keys in the ignition, and they hit the road. After some brief introductions, Leon instructs Claire to open the glove box of the cruiser. Within, she gets her hands on what will be her main handgun in the game, the Browning High Power 9mm pistol. As Claire is examining the gun's iron sights, both her and Leon realize they've both neglected Zombieland rule number 31, check the back seat. A zombie pops out of the back and causes Leon to crash the police cruiser, sending the zombie flying out of the windshield. It's at this point the truck driver who got bit is now zombified and is driving his truck right towards our heroes. Bailing out at the very last second, Leon and Claire are separated by the ensuing explosion caused by the collision. Leon calls out to Claire that she should head towards the police station and that he'll meet her there. As the camera pans outward showing the fiery destruction, the screen fades to black and we're given control of whichever character we're playing as. Right away, we are given no tutorial and we're not given any direction. We're in the middle of the city streets, completely exposed. Zombies are already starting to come towards us, even some walking through the fiery wreckage. All we can do is run. There's too many of them, and we only have one magazine of bullets in our gun, certainly not enough to kill them all. With no time to even get our bearings, we run down the street dodging the undead. Soon we come across a gun shop. Perfect! Once we go through the door, we're met by who we assume is the shop's owner. Who are you? What are you doing here? He's obviously scared as he quickly puts us at gunpoint. We talk him down, and once he realizes we're not a zombie and a member of the living, <sighs> sorry about that. He relaxes and lets us know that we're safe inside the store and he's keeping a very close eye on things. But you should be safe inside here. I'm keeping a close eye on things. 
The music in this moment is very tense, but we finally have a moment to catch our breath. Phew, that was intense, right? Let's take this moment to step back and talk about the controls themselves for a little bit while we're catching our breath. When I was a kid playing this game for the first time, I used this time to get familiar with what all the buttons did. Veterans of the original Resident Evil game will feel right at home with how this game controls. Resident Evil 2 uses tank controls. For those that don't know, that means your character will move relative to the position they themselves are facing instead of the camera's position. Basically, you have to press up on the directional pad to move forward. Pressing left or right doesn't move your character in those directions, it only pivots your body in that direction. It's like an old-school military tank, and the controls are as cumbersome as that analogy makes them sound. But personally, I love tank controls. They take a minute to get used to, but they work just fine, and they add a layer of tension, I think. Tank controls make it to where you're not as nimble as a modern game would make you out to be, and because of that, encounters with the enemy can be even more nerve-wracking, and in a good way because of it. At least that's my feeling on the matter. I know there are some out there that hate this control scheme. Now, as far as your weapon goes, you hold a shoulder button on the controller to aim, and you press the X button to fire your weapon. Simple enough. You hold down the square button while you're moving to run, which is something we hopefully figured out when we first started so we aren't overwhelmed by all the zombies. Pressing the X button while we're not aiming our weapon allows us to pick up items or search an area. And that's really all there is to the control scheme. As we explore the gun shop, we'll find some ammunition for our handgun and things start to feel a little bit better at this point. When we have bullets, we have a fighting chance. While we're in the middle of our exploration of the store, four zombies crash through the storefront window and quickly overwhelm the shop owner, and it's clear he is not going to make it. At this point, we can clear out the zombies and collect whatever weapon the shop owner had on him, or just hightail it the fuck out of there. Regardless of what we decide, we still have to keep making our way to the police station. Eventually, we make our way there, and once we enter those big green double doors, they close behind us with a thud, leaving us inside the main hall all alone. We might be off the streets, but are we safe? <laughs> Far from it. Once you get to the police station, the game settles down just a little bit. At least initially, you aren't given an objective. You know your partner is supposed to meet you here, but that's about it. You're just free to explore the main hall, and there are several doors you can check. None of them open except for one. When you go through that door, you're in an obvious office area, but your attention is quickly turned to a wounded police officer on the floor. His name is Marvin Branagh, and he tells you that you need to search for survivors in the other rooms of the police station. He gives you a key card you can use to unlock the other doors in the main hall. He's pretty badly wounded when you offer to help him. He points his gun at you and tells you to go. You don't want to think about it, but poor Marvin probably isn't going to make it. You leave the room and Marvin locks the door behind you. Now that you have the key card, you can use it to unlock the other doors in the hall. With what Marvin tells you, it sounds like you might actually find survivors. I was pretty interested to see if I'd come across any other humans in my journey. The mansion in the first game was completely empty, with no hope of finding anyone alive. So I thought Resident Evil 2 might actually be different. So this is the basic setup of the game. 
From here, it's up to you to explore the police station and find a pathway forward. Other than the enemies roaming the halls of the police station, your biggest obstacles are usually going to be locked doors or blocked passageways. As you explore, you need to search each room and find items that will unlock new areas such as keys or other parts and pieces to puzzles that you'll probably come across sooner than you expect. Where the survival part of this game comes in is with regards to the limited resources you'll find scattered about in the environment. Ammo and healing items are limited, so you have to decide if an enemy in your way is worth engaging or not. If you choose to fight, you'll have to expend ammo to kill it. Now, depending on the situation, you can put yourself at risk of taking damage, but usually you'll keep damage to a minimum if you're fighting from a distance. Once you kill an enemy, it won't come back, so it may be worth clearing enemies out of smaller areas you're going to be traveling through frequently. Now, on the flip side, you may not have enough ammo to kill everything you come across. It's usually better to run around something to avoid a fight wherever you can. The risks here are that the enemies will still be there anytime you travel through that area, and you'll run the chance of taking damage each time you try to evade them. So it might make more sense to leave single enemies alone in wide open areas, allowing you safe passage around them. Also, it's worth mentioning that you have a knife at your disposal when you start the game, but it's tough to use and you need to be extremely close to enemies to deal damage. And the damage it does deal isn't all that much. If you want to, you can learn to become skilled enough with it in an effort to save ammunition, but I never felt that hard-pressed for resources while I was playing. As soon as I come across an item box where I can dump my excess equipment, the knife was the first thing I chucked in there. Sorry, little guy. Now, the gameplay is generally the same regardless of who you're playing as. However, some of the puzzles, areas, and even the resources you have access to are different, which provides a little bit of a unique challenge depending on who you're playing as. But before we get to those differences, I wanted to take a step back and actually touch on some of the gameplay improvements that Resident Evil 2 makes over the original. When I first started to notice a lot of these little things as I was playing, I couldn't help but get giddy inside. It was just the first game, but so much better in all these little ways. So first up, in Resident Evil 2, your characters will start to behave differently when they've taken too much damage. In the main menu, you can see your health on this little EKG chart. When you're in good health, it will be green and it will read the word fine. When you've taken damage and you're down to about half of your health, the chart turns orange and the word caution will appear. At this point, your character will actually hold their side in-game and pant when you're standing still. Your movement speed is reduced a little bit too, which you'll notice when you're running. Then when you've taken so much damage that you're about to keel over and die, the chart turns red and danger will appear above it. In-game, your character is going to be limping at this point and move very slowly. You can run, but it's not much faster than walking. Not only does this feature allow you to know how much health you're at without having to stop what you're doing, open the menu and take a look, it adds just a little bit of tension. Like, when you're fighting a zombie horde and you're getting bit, and then you turn to leave, and you're barely limping along, and the zombies are slowly chasing after you, about to grab you. Escaping in this state is an adrenaline rush, let me tell you. I also like in Resident Evil 2, your character's head will look towards an enemy if you're close enough to it. The backgrounds here are just like the first game, they're all pre-rendered, and the camera angles are fixed. 
There's going to be plenty of times where the camera isn't giving you the full view of a room and enemies love to hide off screen. If you're close enough, Leon and Claire will move their heads towards the threat. It's just a little touch, but I love it when you enter a hallway and there might be something sinister on the ceiling. One more thing that I appreciated was the grenade launcher weapon. There's different types of ammo that you can use with it, again, just like the first game. Explosive rounds, acid rounds, and flame rounds. In the original Resident Evil, whichever round you put into the launcher was stuck in there until all rounds were fired. In Resident Evil 2, you can pull out your explosive rounds and replace them with flame rounds, for instance. It's another little small thing, but I really appreciated that little quality of life addition. Okay, now that we captured those couple things, I wanted to talk about the differences between Leon and Claire themselves. When I was little playing Resident Evil 2, I tended to favor playing as Leon more than I played as Claire. The biggest reason for that was the types of weapons that he got that Claire didn't have access to. So first up, let's talk weapons. While both characters have access to a handgun at the start of the game, Leon's weapons are much more focused on sheer firepower. He'll have the opportunity to find a shotgun and a magnum, which is a handgun so powerful it will decapitate a zombie in one shot. <laughs> nice. You can also come across custom weapon parts for the handgun, shotgun, and the magnum to further improve their firepower. For the handgun, you can upgrade it to shoot three shot bursts. The shotgun you can upgrade for more raw power, enough where Leon will actually get thrown back a little bit when he shoots it. And the Magnum gets a power upgrade so intense, you can headshot multiple zombies in a row if they stand in the line of fire. It is pretty righteous. Go. Oh, fun fact I discovered for those that may not know. When you find weapon parts, use all of the ammunition in the gun that you want to upgrade before you actually combine the parts in the menu. Because when you do, the gun will have all of its ammo refilled, so it's a cheap way to get some free bullets. You are welcome. You can also find a flamethrower near the end of the game, which is a nice callback to the original game. It's limited in ammo, but useful on some select enemies. Claire's weaponry was a little more diverse, in that I felt they had very specific uses over just sheer firepower. Her shotgun equivalent is the crossbow, or the bow gun, whatever it's called. I'll be honest, I hardly ever use the bowgun. It was great for early enemies, and it shoots a spray of three bolts, so it's decent for crowd control, but it felt very weak to me, and I'd just rather stick with my handgun. I will say, the amount of ammo you find for the bowgun is pretty generous, though. Probably her most versatile weapon is the grenade launcher. Like I mentioned, it has different types of ammo that can be used with it. The explosive rounds are pretty much what they sound like, but instead of one powerful grenade, these rounds shoot smaller grenades, kind of like a cluster shot. Another great tool for crowd control, and they do pretty decent damage. I also discovered if you tap up on the directional pad while you're aiming and quickly fire before you're aiming completely up, you have a small chance of one of the clusters headshotting a zombie, and that's kind of cool. Acid rounds fire a single shot, and I found these work best against zombies and the liquor enemies since they're all exposed to muscle. Oh, and we'll talk more about those pesky little liquors a little bit later. Finally, you have flame rounds. I only ever use these at the end of the game. There are plant-based enemies that don't really like fire too much, and those work great on them. So yeah, the grenade launcher is pretty useful. 
Claire also has the ability to find a unique weapon called the Spark Shot. It's like a gigantic taser, and a full blast of this puppy generally kills most things pretty quick, and if it doesn't, it will stunlock them for a moment so they can't move for a bit. I found this most useful on some of the boss monsters, actually. It was a pretty unique weapon for what it was. So that's the weaponry. The last thing to mention on this topic is each character has a unique item they carry with them at all times. Leon has a lighter in his inventory, and Claire has a lockpick. The lighter is a useful item that allows Leon to solve some puzzles quicker than Claire can, and it can help him locate items ahead of time, whereas the lockpick will allow Claire to gain access to a couple areas without a key, as well as being able to open some desks that are scattered around that contain some items. Leon can come across and open these desks, but he has to find small keys to break them open. It's a small thing, and it tweaks the gameplay experience between these two characters just enough to make them even more unique. And that should cover the basics. We have our story set up, we know most of our main cast of characters, their differences, and we have an idea of what sort of tools are used for survival. Now I want to turn the episode more towards all the experiences I had playing the game growing up some of the more unique events of the game, and explore the biggest differences in the A scenario and the B scenario. So here's the experience spoiler warning. If you've never played the original Resident Evil 2, and you don't want any of the unique experiences spoiled for yourself, this is where you want to bow out of the podcast. I can't imagine there are many listening to the show who haven't played this game, or don't mind the details, but I still wanted to give the option. Resident Evil 2 is one of those games I wish I could erase from my memory and play fresh, because I'll never forget how it made me feel the first time. So let me take a quick break, grab a drink, and when we come back, it's time to get into the nitty-gritty of Resident Evil 2. Now, if there's one moment that everyone thinks of when thinking about Resident Evil 2, what would that be? For me, it was coming across the very first liquor. We all know the liquors, right? Those skinless monsters with the long claws, the long tongues, and the horrific moaning they make. These motherfuckers were just like the clickers from The Last of Us. They invoked fear when you knew that they were near. And when you hear them, your blood would just run cold. Remember? Was I right? Did that give you chills? <laughs> you first come across the very first one pretty early on in the game. You're in the police station reception area, and when you round the corner, you're facing a window, but it's pitch black outside. Without any sound or any prompting whatsoever, you see a flash of something move past the window. When I was little, I remember how I quickly just froze up. Did I see what I just saw? I remember looking over to my stepdad and I asked him if he saw that. He told me he didn't see anything. I wasn't buying it though, I knew I saw something. So without any other choice, I moved into the next room. 
When the door closed, the camera's view was like it was outside the window looking in at me. I froze again. Is whatever I saw looking at me right now? I shook it off and tried not to think about it. I moved down the long hallway and I heard what sounded like something hitting the floor, kind of like a dripping sound. Once I rounded the next corner, I saw the dead body of a police officer on the ground without his head. When I examined the body, the game told me that the head appeared to have been twisted off. Twisted off. (laughs) Continuing on, we see what's making the dripping noise. Blood is dripping down from the ceiling and it's hitting the floor. I didn't want to move any closer, but I knew I had to. When we get to the pool of blood, whoever we're playing as bends over to examine the puddle. Then something catches our attention and we look up. Then we're met with a full-on CGI cutscene introducing the liquor. Oh man, was it intense. The game has barely started, and zombies are no longer the biggest threat. What the shit is going on? Right when the scene ends, the liquor drops from the ceiling and lands right at our feet. Then the game gives us back control. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, what do we do, what do we do? I turned to my stepdad and asked him what I should do. My character was standing there and the liquor was starting to inch closer. And that's when my stepdad finally spoke up. He only said one word. RUN! As soon as I started running past the liquor, it sat up and it reared back. Then it lunged towards me, letting out a screech. A screech I'm sure we all know and will never forget. I was able to dodge the attack and make it to the door at the end of the hall. Once we ran through it and the door shut, I stood there for a moment. My stepdad and I were wide-eyed. What in the actual fuck was that? I'll never forget that moment of seeing that creature for the first time. I know in other Resident Evil games and even in some of the movie adaptations, the liquor is sort of a series staple now, but I argue the liquor will never be as menacing and as intimidating as it was in this game. Zombies were one thing, but when you came across a liquor, you always hesitated, trying to decide if it's worth fighting or if you need to find a way to evade it. The liquor will forever be one of my favorite video game enemies. Aside from this new enemy, what made Resident Evil 2's atmosphere almost perfect for me was the files you can find in the environment. You figure out pretty quick that zombies ultimately invaded and took over the police department, but some of the operation files that highlighted what happened during the initial outbreak are pretty cool to read. They aren't files on the same level as a game like The Last of Us or anything, but it was nice added flavor filling in the blanks of what happened before you got there. More than that, you'll find documents that give more light to the shady dealings of the Umbrella Corporation and what happened to the original characters of the first game. I know for me, when I first sat down with this game, I was really interested to figure out what happened to Chris Redfield, Jill Valentine, Barry Burton, Rebecca Chambers, and the rest of the members of Stars. On the second floor of the police station, you'll actually come across the Stars office, where our heroes would hang out outside of their missions. It sounds really dumb, but I was really, really excited to find this room in the game. Claire's reason for being in Raccoon City was to find her brother, and I was hoping he'd be in that office. Ultimately, he wasn't there, and I shouldn't have been surprised. You do find Chris's diary just sitting on his desk in the open, where he talks about how he left to go to Umbrella HQ in Europe to get some answers. 
it was kind of a bummer that he wasn't there, but once I started poking around the office, I found a lot of cool stuff, especially nods to the previous game. There were desks set up, and it was pretty clear whose desk was whose. Chris's desk had his diary on it, and it had a jacket hanging on the nearby wall, which was the jacket Chris was able to wear as an alternate costume in the first game, so I thought that was a cool little touch. Jill's desk was right behind it, and you can tell that it was hers because her signature blue beret was sitting on it. Rebecca's desk was behind Jill's. There was a medical pouch and unpacked boxes, calling out her newbie status and her role in the unit, which was the medic. In front of the room was Barry Burton's desk. You can tell that because of all the gun parts sitting on it. Against the wall was Albert Wesker's desk. Now speaking of Wesker's desk, many of you probably know this, but if you search Wesker's desk a total of 50 times, 5-0, you'll come across a roll of undeveloped film. If you take it to the dark room on the first floor and develop it, you'll find that it was a photograph of Rebecca in her star's athletic gear. Very interesting. I'm willing to bet our favorite bad guy, Albert Wesker, has a thing for the rookie 18-year-old, but it's all left to our imaginations. Beyond that, there are other cool little things to find in the office. On the back wall, there's a full portrait of the star's team pre-Resident Evil 1. It was pretty cool to see. It had all the major players in the first game in it, and I felt like it was a really nice callback. In a cardboard box on the floor by Chris's desk, there is the gold emblem item from the first game, too. I noticed that and thought it was a pretty cool callback as well, although I'm not entirely sure how the emblem was able to be taken from the mansion in the first place. Eh, not worth thinking about. The last cool thing I discovered somewhat recently is there is a photo on the wall between Jill and Rebecca's desk that, upon closer examination, is a photo from the Back to the Future 3 movie. Most of the other Resident Evil games are full of pop culture references and callouts to other Capcom games, but I never knew about this one until I was poking around the interwebs. All of this makes the Star's Office one of the cooler locations in the entire game. Next up, I want to explore some of the gameplay slash story experiences and speak to how some of them are different depending on who you're playing as and if you're playing in the A or the B scenario. The basic structure of Leon and Claire's overall story scenes and the main plot points don't change too much between them, but they are unique as you play as each of them. As Leon explores the RPD, he'll come across Ada Wong, who is a mysterious woman trying to find information about her boyfriend John, who works for Umbrella. Ada is pretty cold, and she comes off as heartless in the beginning, and it's pretty obvious she's after more than just trying to find her lost love. Shit, Leon actually takes a bullet for Ada when Ada goes running after a woman they see in the sewers. Leon's bleeding out on the ground, and all Ada has to say is, Leon, that woman was... I have to talk to her. So yeah, there's obviously more to Ada than she's letting on. With her help, though, you're able to access an area of the RPD's basement that you can't access as Claire. Now on the other side, there's an area of the second floor that you can't access as Leon, but you can access as Claire. However, in each other's B scenario, you can explore these areas after they've been cleared out by the other character. Now, while Leon is hanging around Ada, getting shot for his troubles, Claire's buddy is Sherry Birkin. You'll find her running around the police department and eventually corner her in a back room. At first, I'll admit, I rolled my eyes when I first encountered Sherry. 
Great, we gotta keep track of a kid. Wonderful. Though, once we got to know her and why she's so scared, I was mildly intrigued. Sherry's parents work for Umbrella, and she was told to go to the police station as soon as things went south in the city. When Claire wants to take Sherry to get a move on, Sherry resists. But there's something out there. I don't know what it is, but I saw it. Much larger than any of those zombies. And it's coming after me! What was that? That's what I was telling you about! It's here! This was another section of the game where my blood just ran cold. Who is this girl, and why was a monster after her? And that growl sounded really close. Am I gonna run into this thing? I was a little scared at this point, but excited at the same time. I knew I had to find Sherry and figure out just what the hell was going on. We find out that the creature that's chasing Sherry is actually her father, Dr. William Birkin, who created the G-Virus, a more improved version of the T-Virus, which was the main virus in the first game. Birkin was developing the G-Virus in secret, and Umbrella decided that they wanted it. In an effort to take it, Birkin was mortally wounded by gunfire. To save himself, he injected himself with the G-Virus and became a monster, chasing down the Umbrella troops that stole the virus. This caused the virus to be let loose in the sewer, and it's what started the events that ultimately led to Raccoon City's infection and ultimate downfall. It's still not the deepest story in my opinion, but it was pretty cool as we figure these things out. Birkin is after Sherry because he wants to infect her with the G-Virus and more or less reproduce. Infecting someone who isn't a genetic match will cause the victim to expel the embryo implanted and kill the host. Since Sherry is his daughter and obviously has a similar genetic makeup, Sherry will accept the embryo and the virus will take her over. It's kinda creepy, really. Once you learn this, you really feel as though you have to keep this girl safe. Now the whole A-B scenario thing and the things that happen in the A scenario that translate to the B scenario I always thought were pretty cool. This was advertised as a zapping system, though I'm going to admit I have no idea why they chose the word zapping. Basically, it's a system that allows you to do things in your A scenario that will directly impact the next character's B scenario. It's not as granular as being able to take items from one room and they won't be there for the other character, but some of that does exist under predetermined circumstances. I played around a lot with some of these things I thought would impact the other person's B scenario when I was a kid. Here's what I remember offhand. First up, let's talk about probably the one thing everyone who's played Resident Evil 2 remembers offhand. In the police station basement, there's a weapon storage area where you could find a small stockpile of ammunition. In a locker in the back of the room, you'll find a submachine gun and a side pack. The side pack will add two more inventory slots so you can carry more items, and the submachine gun is a powerful, fully automatic weapon with a decent amount of ammunition in it. The catch with the submachine gun is that it takes two inventory slots to carry. Eh, what to do? My very first time playing this game, I took both items. The side pack to carry more items, and the submachine gun just fit nicely into those slots. When I went to pick up the second item, the game actually warned me that I might want to save that item for the other character. Nah, it'll be fine. I didn't really understand how the zapping system worked, and I figured the game was just trying to make me feel like I was getting too much firepower in that moment. But I earned it, goddammit. 
so I took it all with me. When I ultimately played Claire's B scenario, I was horrified to discover that the locker was actually empty. It didn't put me at a huge disadvantage or anything, but it would have been nice to have an extra toy in the toy chest. Moving forward, I usually let Leon have the machine gun to add to his already overpowered arsenal of weapons, and I gave Claire the side pack so she could comfortably carry multiple types of grenade ammunition at once. Ah, here's another good one. Who remembers the giant alligator in the sewers? Yeah, now that was something I was not expecting at all from this game. There's a point in the sewers where you come across a very long hallway with a couple of turns. At the end of the tunnel, this giant alligator appears and chases you down the hallway. It was an epic scene and scared the complete crap out of me when I was a kid. Bullets didn't seem to damage it much at all, and it comes barreling at you no matter what you throw at it. There are only two ways out of this battle. You can either put enough bullets into it to make it run off, or you can kill it in spectacular fashion. Halfway through the tunnel, you'll come across a gas cylinder that is very conveniently placed for you to use. When you knock it over, it should be obvious what comes next. Wait for the alligator to get it stuck in its mouth, aim your gun, pull the trigger, and watch as the alligator's upper jaw explodes in a shower of blood and gore. Nice. Now if you don't do this in your A scenario, and only drive it away with gunfire, it will reappear in your B scenario and you have to fight it again. But man, that whole experience was something else. Resident Evil 2 kept taking what I thought I knew about the game and surpassing my expectations, especially with the enemies and the action set pieces. The giant snake in the first game was pretty awesome, but seeing something as big as this alligator made that snake look like a little critter you'd find in your garden or something. Even getting killed by the alligator was pretty awesome to see. Not that I'd really recommend that. The very first time I encountered the gator, I ran like crazy and didn't look back. Then when I got to the end of the tunnel, I was met with a locked door. And since I hadn't been fighting the gator at all at this point, I had to make a final stand. And well, it was a really good thing that I had saved my game recently. Talking about the alligator makes me think of arguably the coolest monster in the entire game, and you'll only encounter it in your B scenario. It's the reason the B scenario is my favorite one out of the two. He's big, he's mean, and he won't stop until you're dead. Yeah, Resident Evil 2 veterans know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about Mr. X, the Tyrant, the T-00, Trenchy, whatever the hell you want to call him. He's introduced in the beginning of the B scenario as he's being dropped from an umbrella helicopter. His pod breaks open and he lands right in the police station, right into a hallway that you're just about to enter. I remember stopping when I saw this scene, knowing I was going to have to face this thing in the next room. I threw open the map and searched feverishly for another way to get where I was going. Damn it, there was no other way but to go forward. The game developers knew what they had done. I swallowed hard and made my way inside. As soon as I entered the hallway, damage caused by Mr. X's entrance caused debris to fall and cover the door. I couldn't go back. When I got control of my character back, there was no battle music or anything blaring. Just silence. Then I heard him. His footsteps. And they were getting louder. Right as he rounded the corner, the music kicked in.
Mr. X was walking towards me, his huge body covered in a long leather trench coat looking thing. His bald head was pale and his eyes were lifeless. He reminded me of the Terminator. My adrenaline was pumping and I had no idea what to do next. Do I engage him or do I run? I decided it was time to run. As I tried to squeeze past him, he knocked me back with an insanely fast side swipe of his fist. Ah, shit! I quickly opened my menu to take inventory of my weapons and ammo. I didn't think I had enough to fight this thing, but if it won't let me pass, I may need to make a final stand. I decided to stick with my handgun just to get a feel for how he takes damage. I still had some room to back up. As I fired, it was clear the handgun was doing very little. Oh man, this was it. I was going to get pummeled by this thing. And that's when he took both of his fists and rose them high over his head, like he was about to bring them down on me. In an instant, I used that opportunity to run past him. As I ran, I could hear his footsteps following me. I didn't look back. First door I saw, I ran right through it. When the door closed behind me, I again found myself just standing there. What the hell was that? I listened to my TV speakers for any signs of footsteps. Nothing. I was safe for the moment. I sighed and continued on. As you continue on in your B scenario, Mr. X will pop up during specific pre-scripted moments. I think we all have our favorite entrances because I know I have a couple. I mean, they're cool looking back at now, but as a kid, ugh, they were horrifying. First was in the police station where you had to light the three torches in the correct order to get the cog wheel for the clock tower on the third floor. You had to do this same puzzle in your A scenario and when you solved it, it was pretty uneventful. The cog wheel dropped from the wall to the ground and then you can walk over to collect it. You head on over, pick it up, and then you're out the door with your prize. Easy. Uneventful. In the B scenario, the puzzle was solved in the exact same way with the exact same solution. I had my brain shut off at this point. The immediate area had been cleared out of zombies for quite a while, so I hadn't had to worry about any enemies for a bit. I entered the room and lit the torches in the correct order. The cogwheel fell to the floor, and I moved to collect it. As soon as I took my first step, BAM! Mr. X came crashing through the back wall. No prompting, no loading screens, nothing. It just happened. As soon as he came crashing in, his theme music started and panic set in. I ran my ass off towards the cogwheel, I scooped it up, and before Mr. X could get near me, I hightailed it out of the room. Phew. At this point in the game, Mr. X wasn't following me from room to room or anything, so I just dismissed what I assumed was a cheap jump scare. Good job, game. You got me, you dick. So I started to head where I needed to go, and I rounded the corner. As I was making my way down the hall, I realized something. There was normally background music playing in this area. But now that I'm walking down the hallway, there's no music playing. It's just silence. That's odd. Eh, whatever, I wrote it off. Figured since I just had this traumatic experience, it just made sense not to have the usual music playing. That should have been my clue that the fun wasn't quite over yet. Before it registered that I probably shouldn't have let my guard down, Mr. X burst through another wall right in front of me. I dropped my controller this time and it bounced under the coffee table. Shit, shit, shit! As I was fishing for it, I heard Mr. X wind up and connect with a punch and my character cried out in pain. Fuck, he's gonna kill me because a stupid jump scare got me. 
I was finally able to grab my controller just in time to avoid another attack, and I was able to make a getaway. Good job, game. You got me twice in less than a minute. You can properly fuck off now. <sighs> Looking back at that moment, though, I can't help but smile. It was awesome. It really did get me, and that moment stuck with me forever because of it. Just like I'm sure it stuck with a lot of you out there that are listening to this and went through that scenario. Oh, the nightmares we had. My second favorite Mr. X entrance was near the end of the game where you're heading to the Umbrella Laboratory. In the B scenario, you come to a short walkway that turns a few times and ends with a row of security cameras on a back wall. One of the monitors has a blinking red light above it, and it's really hard to miss, so I examined it. I was given the option to check the monitors. Sure, maybe it'll give me an idea of what's up ahead or something. I was dead wrong. As soon as I flipped the monitor on, it was him. You saw him walking slowly towards the camera. I remember looking around Mr. X trying to figure out where he was. And then, it hit me. That door behind him. The walkway railings. That was the door I just walked through. He's here! He's on this walkway with me right now! Right when Mr. X got to the security monitor, he stood there for a moment, just staring into it. You couldn't help but get creeped out by his icy cold stare. Then he reared back and dropped his hammer blow on the camera, at which point the image cut to static. When you got control back, you heard his footsteps around the corner. There was no running from him, at least not easily. Since it was near the end of the game, I actually had a decent amount of ammo stockpiled, and I remember deciding to take him on. He slapped me around like a bitch a little bit, but I was able to put him down. I found out in this moment that Mr. X has items on him that you can loot off of him if you can drop him, so that was cool to know, as the game was about over. Now, Mr. X wasn't the only new enemy to the series. He was probably the coolest, but there were some others. Deeper into the Umbrella Lab, there were these walking plant creatures that could either spit acid at you if you were unfortunate enough to get near them, or they could actually grab you and douse you with their acid spit. The reason I bring them up is they posed a different kind of threat to you depending on what actions you took in your A scenario. Further into the lab, you can come across a B.O.W. gas sprinkler. B.O.W. stands for bioorganic weapon, by the way. If you turn the gas on, the enemies in some parts of the lab will actually get weaker and go down much more easier. But there's a catch. It's revealed in a file that you find in your B scenario that some monsters will actually become immune to the gas over time and even get stronger because of it, because they found a way to use the gas as a nutrient. So if you use the gas in scenario A, you'll have a much easier time, but in your B scenario, the plant creatures specifically become way stronger. Their appearance changes, and their acid spit actually becomes poisonous. What you want to do is resist the urge to use the gas in your A scenario and save it for your B run-through. It was a little quirk that I thought was kind of cool. The last A-B scenario thing that I thought was pretty cool was the fingerprint lock outside the culture room in the Umbrella Lab. It's a room that required you to open a door using two distinct fingerprint ID codes. In another room in the lab, you can register your fingerprint with the system and then use your fingerprint to try and open the door. The catch was, in your A scenario, you can scan your fingerprint, but you needed somebody else to actually open the door. 
You couldn't do anything to open the door in the A scenario, but if you did the same steps in your B scenario, that character can open the door so long as you scanned your fingerprint in the A scenario. Hopefully that makes sense. Overall, it was another nice little touch. Not only did it give you access to a secret area of the lab with some interesting stuff to see, you'll find a submachine gun there if you didn't already get it in the police station weapon locker room. If you did get it, you'll find a spare magazine full of ammo that can be used with the submachine gun instead, so it's well worth the effort. All in all, I love the fact that this game had the A-B scenario system like this. It added a great amount of replay value, even if by the fourth playthrough I was getting a little burnt out. For a PlayStation-era game, I argue it has more replayability than the Resident Evil 2 Remake from 2019, especially if you have the DualShock Edition like I have. If you beat the A and B scenarios, you unlock a new mini-game called Extreme Battle. It's a completely separate game, and it requires you to pick a character to head back to the police station from the lab. Your objective is to find four antivirus bombs that are hidden in the police station. The character you pick determines their weapon loadout. The game also has three difficulty levels, and it can get pretty hard on level three. I used to replay this game mode so much. The locations of the bombs are somewhat randomized, plus you can search areas for more ammo and supplies to help you out, and I believe those locations are randomized too. It was an awesome extra, and ultimately sealed this game as one of my all-time favorites. I remember taking Resident Evil 2 over to a buddy's house and just play the crap out of Extreme Battle when I was there. Most kids still use their Nintendo 64s for multiplayer gaming and all that, but I was of a different breed. I played Resident Evil 2, and my friends and I loved every second of it. More so than the Extreme Battle game, I was infatuated with the characters in Resident Evil 2. They weren't the deepest characters or anything, but they all had a charm to them that I just couldn't look past. Like I mentioned, it's considered to be story canon, but the Claire A and Leon B scenarios were the ones that I played most often. Leon's story was my absolute favorite. I really liked his character, the rookie cop that just wants to do the right thing, but he's in a situation that's way over his head. He meets Ada Wong, and he can't help but be taken by her mysterious charm. He does take an actual bullet for her, and it's cool to see Ada and Leon slowly start to trust each other and work together to escape the city, despite some of Ada's more questionable motives. Near the end of the game, in Leon's B scenario, she actually sacrifices herself to repel Mr. X and give Leon a chance to escape. Ada bleeds out in Leon's arms, and the two share the cheesiest kiss ever, all while the lab is starting to self-destruct all around them. I don't think the script really gave Leon and Ada enough time to really develop, but I really enjoy this scene. It was heartfelt, it was goofy, definitely campy, and pretty cringeworthy, but it was done really well. I'm just a woman who fell in love with you. Nothing more. Ada. No.
Now, Ada, of course, survives and helps Leon one last time from the shadows before the game ends, and I couldn't help but smile when I saw her toss Leon the weapon he needed to finally kill Mr. X once and for all. Leon and Ada will cross paths more than a few times in later games, and I always like their dynamic. Ada always has an agenda, and Leon often gets used by her for her own ends, but there's just a respect between the two of them, and definitely something more. Is it meant to be? Maybe not, but it's fun watching Leon grow as a person, yet he can't leave his feelings for this mystery woman behind. Claire Redfield successfully unseated Jill Valentine as my personal favorite female character in the series. She proved herself to be a very capable person in the face of overwhelming odds. She's just a young college kid, but rose to the occasion and looked pretty badass while she did it. Her character exhibited a lot of passion, too, especially when it came to protecting Sherry. Her voice actor was absolutely amazing, too. Allison Court brought a charisma to the role that will always stick with me when I think of Claire. I don't know if I like the story direction they take Claire in later games, but I enjoy most everything she does in the series for better or worse. It's not the best game in the series by a long shot, but I enjoyed playing her in Resident Evil Revelations 2. She's a believable character to me, and just like Leon, she wants to do the right thing and protect those that need protecting. She isn't overly righteous or heavy-handed. She can hold her own in a fight, and even if she gets knocked around, she gets back up and she keeps pushing forward. The Raccoon City incident made her a stronger person by the end of the game, and even through the game's cheesy dialogue, that came through for me pretty loud and clear. Resident Evil 2 was a near masterpiece, and a staple game in the survival horror genre. I know there's a bunch of things about this experience I left out, but we'd be here forever if I continue to ramble on. Like how you need to finish the B scenario so you can experience the game's true ending, which was a fantastic addition all its own. The reviews for the time were spot on about this game. This game has an amazing atmosphere, the graphics were vastly improved upon over the original, the sound design was top-notch, the soundtrack was perfect for the title, the replayability is through the roof, and you won't find an experience quite like it. The 2019 remake absolutely did this game justice and stands on its own as one of the best games in the genre, but do not discount the original Resident Evil 2. It's an experience that every gamer should find a way to take part in. That is, if you have the guts. Can you survive the zombie-infested town of Raccoon City and find a way to escape? Or will you ultimately succumb to the unending ranks of the undead and become one of them? And there you have it, that was Resident Evil 2 for the Sony PlayStation. Thank you very much for joining me in the Retro Wildlands today, and letting me geek out about one of the video games that I absolutely love and adore. There are some video games out there that are lost to time and forgotten, 
but the OG Resident Evil 2 will forever be placed next to some of the video game greats. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving a good review wherever you listen to your podcasts at. If you didn't like the show, but you somehow made it this far, I'll assume it's because no other podcast looked interesting or your phone is broken and you're just stuck listening to me. If that's the case, no hard feelings. I hope you get your phone fixed and uh, thank you for sticking it out. You're a, uh, you're a trooper. I appreciate it. Now, if you want to show the podcast or me any support, consider leaving a good review like I said, but also consider liking us and following us over on social media. You can find us on Facebook if you search The Retro Wildlands, and we're also over on Twitter and Instagram at Retro Wildlands. If you follow the show, we'll follow you back. You can message me directly to just shoot the breeze, or tell me the show sucks, or whatever floats your boat. If nothing else, I try to post some eye-catching and mildly entertaining content about gaming, the podcast, and I have an adorable little dog that is incredibly photogenic, so there's something for everybody. Also, you can support the show by spreading the word. Tell your friends about us. Tell your family. Even tell that person you see outside walking their dogs all the time. They're probably just listening to bad music, so do them a favor and let them know that they can listen to a subpar podcast like mine if they want to change things up. So what's coming down the pipe next week? I think it's going to be a toss-up between the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers for the Super Nintendo or Spider-Man and Venom Maximum Carnage for the Sega Genesis slash SNES. Like I mentioned in the intro, I started replaying them both around the same time, and I'm liking them both a lot. It may just come down to whichever one I'm feeling next week, so as a dirty attempt to try to get you to follow me on social media, keep a lookout over there. I'll probably let the cat out of the bag before too long, and definitely before next Thursday. The Power Rangers just sort of came back to my mind this past week for some reason, and Spider-Man was a suggestion from my buddy Tim over on our Facebook page. You can suggest games to be covered on the podcast as well if you reach out to me on social media. I have a decent amount of games at my disposal, so if I think I can make a decent episode on the show, I'll definitely consider replaying it. Plus, I have other games I'm going to replay in the near future for more episodes down the line already planned. We're going to eventually work our way into some more modern games soon also. Now that it's been re-released for probably the 70th time it feels like, I really want to go back and replay The Last of Us, and finally finish Part 2. Somehow I've avoided spoilers for Part 2, so I need to get that one in my cap before I lose that luxury. Plus my buddy Nick kindly berated me over a drink and told me that I need to get that buttoned up so he and I can talk about it and I can join the rest of the world with what happens in that game. So stay tuned, kids. One of these days, we'll travel down that long road together. Until then, my friends, my name is Nomad, and you can find me roaming the retro wildlands. <laughs>